I am Julio Romo and this is the 247 Podcast. I am delighted to be chatting today with Nick Newman, the lead author for the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism 2020 Digital News Report. This is the 90th of the report, which in the last few years has gone global and captures the impact of digital and social on the business of media and journalism, not just here in the UK, but in North and South America and Asia Pacific. Nick, uh, thanks very much for joining me on Zoom for uh, a quick chat, a quick conversation about the latest uh, digital news report from the Reuters uh, Institute. I thought this was its 10th year, but you rightly corrected me. This is the, the ninth year of the uh, report. Uh, Nick, you're the lead author of, uh, of said report uh, and obviously someone with 30 years experience in the news and um, media uh, profession. Um, thanks for the time. Uh, maybe you can start by just sharing with us uh, a bit about the last nine years that you've been with the um, uh, with, with the institute. Yeah, I mean, I think we we had the germ of an idea that uh, there was a gap in the market for properly independent comparative research and data. So individual countries had had great data, companies had great data, but actually over time to be able to sort of compare and really see how, for example, mobile or social media have changed things in an evidence-based way comparatively. That was the prize, that was the idea, and we've gone from five countries in 2012 to 40 countries this year, um, and we're on route to covering half of the world's population. That's the aim. Within a couple of years, we'll get half the world's population. So it's been an exciting journey. <laughs> but every year, the thing is, it gets more, the expectation gets higher. You know, when it's a small report with five countries, that's kind of one thing. But the sort of the media industry and boardrooms kind of, they, they ask you a week before, what are, what's going to be the findings? You know, can, can we have early, early sight of it? And so that kind of increases the pressure of it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, kind of nine, ten years ago, digital and social was very different to what digital and social are today. Back then, if you had a crystal ball and seeing how and the impact that it's had on media, but equally on, on journalism, uh, what would you have said to yourself when you've seen where we are today? As you know, I, do, I try and do sort of predictions. I think some things are kind of obvious. You know, you can see the long-term trends in the data. So I think, you know, the growing importance of mobile, we, we knew that mobile was going to become more important. We knew desktop was going to get less important. What we didn't know was what, what are the implications of that on business models? I think what we didn't see was the rise of the misinformation, actually. Um, and the the incredibly disruptive, and that's just been fascinating actually when you look longitudinally and you see in a number of countries how trust in news has gone down, has halved actually in many countries in five years. And that's not just to do with misinformation, but that's one of the things along with growing sort of polarization and partisanship in our, in our, in our countries, in various countries, which is really, um, you know, uh, really rocking democracy to its core around the world actually. Um, so I think some of the core technical changes, you knew that, you know, fewer people are going to buy print newspapers, right? You know that mobiles can be more important. But I think some of these other effects, um, which haven't necessarily come from media, but from society uh, itself, uh, to do with, um, you know, the rise of uh, populist politicians, increased polarization, th these things uh, are really playing out now in a big way. I mean, do you think that this is something, that this is one of the bigger challenges that, 
not just society, well, not just the media industry, but society has to face up to. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, as you know, I was kind of around at the beginning of digital and it was quite slow, really. <laughs> I mean, the, the, you know, the first thing was just people putting stuff out on the internet. Um, and it was just getting your existing, and they didn't really care about it. And I think the second wave, uh, which you know you you could say started sort of ten years or so, where social and media, social and mobile really came together, together with these external forces, is has been hugely disruptive. It's been um, it's it's partly um, the media has kind of reflected what's going on in society, but I think it's also partly led it. You know the changes around social media, the incentives of Facebook algorithms, or uh, or the way in which Twitter organises itself have have driven some of that change as well. Now, obviously, you mentioned Facebook there. Facebook ten years ago uh, was a very different beast to what it is now. Uh, publishers, news organisations were about having a presence on that platform. The argument has been made that Facebook doesn't pay, uh, but obviously it gets a lot of uh, data on those who consume that. Um, where are we now with the influence of uh, of Facebook on media uh, consumption, new news consumption? Yeah, I think I think we're at a real sort of pivotal change moment again with the platforms. In that every year they're becoming more important as a sort of access point, but it's also clear that the the sort of the old deal, which is, um, well, we'll give you access, you can, you know, you'll increase discoverability, and in return, you'll get traffic, which you can monetize, it's clear that's not working. So um, basically, partly because ads, digital ads are becoming less important, partly because actually, those big companies have a far greater ability to target people. Uh, it's really, really hard for publishers, it doesn't work anymore. And so they've really leveraged political pressure to change the game. And this year is going to be absolutely critical, uh, already has been critical, you start to see some really uh, significant shifts in terms of moves to recognition by the platforms that they need to move to more to payment, direct payment, that ad share revenue isn't going to be enough. Um, and I think, uh, I think the jury's out on how it's going to end up because you still have publishers trying to build those direct relationships. That's really their future. They have to have those direct relationships, but they also recognize they're going to need those platforms to find new audiences or to market what they do in a general sense, even to existing subscribers. So I think the, the relationship's going to be fascinating to watch over the next few years. Do you think some of the publishers have just gone in too far in their rel uh, reliance on... Uh social and, and digital on platforms like uh, uh, Facebook, Twitter and, and others without getting the return that become hostage to them to a certain extent? Well, to a certain extent, and I think everyone kind of realised that, you know, they, they'd made the big mistake in around 2016 of sort of going all in on Facebook. And many of them, of course, then withdrew because they found, you know, again and again, the rewards weren't there. Video being the classic example, you know, Facebook promised the earth, promised you know, monetization, it never came. So essentially, the publishers were helping Facebook build their business. And we've seen the same, you know, many, many times over. And I think publishers now are much more focused on their own strategy, building their own, certainly the premium publishers, you know, building their own direct relationships. And, um, and I think that's the right strategy, but you can't ignore the platforms, particularly for younger generations, because 
that is still you know, the convenience in many cases really trumps the the direct relationship for for many of the younger younger users are there any differences you know from a um, international and cultural i mean and even a market perspective would would the same apply for publishers in the uk europe against those in uh, north america against those potentially in asia uh, are publishers taking different directions between their own cultures in those markets it is very different actually and that's a really good question because i think you know people think that what happens in america or the uk is going to happen exactly the same all over the world and it, it's very different we did a model last year in the digital news report where we asked people what their preferences were so do you prefer to go directly when you're starting a news journey do you prefer to go directly to a news app or website do you prefer to go via social media via search via email via mobile notifications and we saw enormous differences so in scandinavia you know, 64% say they prefer to go directly to the brand. So the, the power of those platforms is much less. Uh, if you look at um, many countries in Asia and Latin America, it's very much social first. You know, the, the sort of cultural approach is about convenience. In many cases, they have younger populations who, again, are sort of more likely to be using social media. And then in a few Asian countries, particularly uh, Korea, Taiwan, and Japan, uh, actually, it's not it's not Facebook. It's aggregators like Yahoo or Naver or Dam who really that's the gateway that everyone finds their news through. And so it's much much harder in those countries for for publishers to build those direct relationships because they've already lost them. And I mean, and certainly, obviously, um, messaging WhatsApp, Telegram, similar apps like that. Certainly, by you know a demographic, a younger age as well. That's where a lot of conversations happening. But equally, that's a a point of concern for misinformation uh, as well. Do you see more people who are susceptible to misinformation who are of an older generation against a new one, those who have been brought up with social? I think, it, yeah, that, I mean, the, the young old thing is, is interesting. Uh, you know, you might instinctively feel that young people are going to um, be more exposed to misinformation because they haven't been around as long, but actually they have so much more digitally savvy <laughs> Uh, we find that many of the sort of sharing, blind sharing that goes on is actually uh, older people rather than younger people. But yeah, I think I think the the other thing which is often not realised is just the the different networks and their importance in different parts of the world. And you, you'd certainly have WhatsApp is absolutely huge in parts of the global south and is really the main way or one of the main ways in which, along with Facebook, in which misinformation is uh, is, is spread countries like Brazil or Kenya or South Africa. And that is really concerning because you can't sort of really see what's going on in many of those networks. And so that loophole has definitely been exploited. Um, I think, whereas in the UK and US, um, you know, people don't really use WhatsApp for news very much, you know, might share the odd link, but it's used in a completely different way. And then in parts of Asia, as you know, uh, you know, it may be other applications like Line or WeChat um, or Telegram, uh, or signal, you know, and in places like Hong Kong, you've got uh, actually, you know, the pro-democracy groups using the the, the closed messaging apps yeah, to keep really themselves cool. safe. So it's a very different use case. What do you think is going to be the importance of messaging with regards to news organisations getting their news stories out to younger people? I think it's. I think it's going to be tricky. It all depends on what the attitude of the messaging application is. I mean, WhatsApp have been very clear that they don't want, you know, to offer these branded spaces. And indeed, they've closed down many of those opportunities to distribute news through 
WhatsApp. And that's partly because they don't want, you know, um, anybody, whether it's a political party or an activist or whatever, to be spreading misinformation within those networks. So I think whereas WeChat or, or others have been much more open in terms of, you know, how they see those platforms going forward and the relationships they want with brands or media companies. So I think it's going to be mixed. It will depend on the network. It will depend on their approach to issues like misinformation and how they plan to make money. Um, but I think messaging, the overall trend is one where messaging is growing and it's used in combination with open networks. In other words, you use open networks for a certain thing. Uh, you use visual networks like Instagram for a certain type of thing and you're using uh, messaging for something else. So younger people in particular are just very, very fluid about using all these things together. Older people tend to stick to one or two things. And I mean, with regards to kind of uh, misinformation specifically, do you think that the networks, the, 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 the social media companies, digital companies, have a certain uh, responsibility? Do you think they're going to act uh, and they're going to make change or are they going to be influenced at the end of the day by campaigns such as uh, Stop Hate for Profit? Uh, which has just recently you know, been picking up. Yeah, I think, I think, again, this is such an interesting time, uh, whether it's because of coronavirus or other things, but you're, you are starting to see that generational shift, aren't you? You're starting to see that change. Things almost have been stuck for, you know, we've been going around these circular arguments about, well, misinformation's a problem, you need to take more responsibility, and then Facebook do a few little things, but they're not, they're, you know, they're, they're sticking to that view as, you know, we're not the arbiters of truth. Um, you know, freedom of expression is more important than, uh, or is the most important thing. And then we're really, really seeing some shifts. And the reason we're seeing shifts is because there is a, a new generation coming up who's, who say that's not good enough. And in turn, they are pressurizing advertisers who, who are the ones that Facebook really listen to. So once you, once you, we've seen this before in many cases, you know, when the advertisers start pulling the plug, then uh, real change starts to happen. And in the last few weeks, you've seen Facebook throw out a whole load of holy, holy cows and changing their strategy, not absolutely, um, but, but certainly moving significantly in a direction, certainly from our research, which suggests that people want them to take, in other words, to be much more acting uh, to protect people online rather than free speech reigns and, uh, you know, we can deal with the consequences. I mean, if I'm right, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Facebook, for example, uh, with regards to its revenue, I think it's 98% or something comes from advertising specifically. So if you wanted to influence change, where, where would you start to, to make sure that, there were, um, that you were able to tackle that, that issue and therefore focus on trust and giving people trust in factual information again right but we've been talking about this for ages right i mean the advertisers i can't remember was it they had a procter and gamble or a unilever i can't remember which getting up and and talking about this in probably two years ago in completely different terms and then and then nothing much has happened but suddenly it's happened and the reason it's happened is because of um you know george floyd because of you know people's concern about uh, you know, a whole range of, of of issues now on which they feel passionately, they care passionately. And, uh, and you know, the advertisers need that support from the next generation. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you just get these tipping points and that's what's happening. Okay, so I mean, good that we are at, at a tipping point. I mean, um, um, with regards to um, more that kind of what the communication industry can learn from the report, are there 
uh, a, a number of things that, that you would highlight with regards to uh, how um, how the media and news industry have changed? Um, I think, I mean, you know, I think the, the comms industry kind of understands the core changes, but a lot of it has still been, you know, digital add-on and, and the, you know, we, we go back to our muscle memory, which is, okay, we'll, we'll try and get an article in this mainstream newspaper. And uh, I'm not saying that's always wrong. I, th- I think, you know, obviously those big um, news organizations have big audiences, but they're also hugely influential in social media as well. I think the, uh, what are the changes? I mean, I think, I think we've, we've discussed one, which is sort of the growth of messaging apps, but very, very hard to influence. So a lot of this is really going to be about that move to trust, authenticity, you know, organic content that really resonates with the people you're trying to reach. That's the heart of, of everything. I think, you know, you can't buy uh, influence in maybe the way you used to be able to do. I think there are some other shifts which are interesting around, I'd say the generational shift is, is fascinating. And as part of that, I think the growth of Instagram is really this year's big trend. Uh, we've, and to an extent, TikTok, we've kind of seen it with, I guess it's visual, um, it's uh, short form visual content as a way of attract, attracting and engaging people. And we've seen it with um, Black Lives Matter. We've seen it with coronavirus. Um, you know, I actually thought TikTok had no relevance to the news industry a year ago at all. Um, but but we you know if you if you look at some some of the stuff that's on TikTok and we did polling around COVID and we found you know ten percent of eighteen twenty fours said they had found or discussed or um, news around uh, coronavirus through TikTok for example so these things are happening and I think the sort of the visual the, these apps that have grown up with mobile are really coming into their own some of those formats that we've talked about for a long time like stories are really uh, are, are really, I think, emerging and here to stay. Can I ask, is, it, is the news media industry losing its ability to gather the story and set the narrative compared to conversations that are, ha- are happening in Facebook groups, WhatsApp groups, Telegram, that then go from a private to a public uh, mainstream? I don't think it's quite as simple as losing. I think the mainstream media still sets a lot of the agenda and it sets it within those um, those groups that you talk about. But it also, it no longer has the monopoly. So um, often it needs to react to things that are happening elsewhere or it's slow to do so. So I think, I think a lot of this is about... Um, in a way, actually, the media industry needs to be more distinct about what its agenda is going forward. It needs to be clearer about what it stands for, both its values, the quality of its journalism, and that will actually help it not be blown around in the same way and, and, and sort of regain its influence. Uh, um, so I, I, th- I think it's I think part of the problem is we've all got quite confused between information that's published on the internet. And, and journalism and part of the challenge over the next 10 years really or next few years is to re-establish that um, and so when you see it whether that's in social media or not you're clear that this is different because it's come from a particular brand that you respect you know the processes that have gone on behind it or it's something that's really well researched and distinctive as opposed to you know an eyewitness report or something that happens to be in social media. Are we seeing? Uh, are we continuing to see changes in the in the structure of a of a newsroom um, 
around the world uh, are certain markets leading in how digital is now embedded into the uh, into their own newsrooms uh, well i think covid will accelerate that so it's been going on for some time some people have been putting it off because they feel they haven't needed to but yeah i mean covid has changed everything right i mean you you've had uh, tv companies who uh within you know two weeks have had to completely re-engineer the way, way in which they make television. Uh, and that includes, you know, digital editing at home, includes using Zoom calls, you know, the, the, the whole gamut. Uh, you know, news organisations like the Financial Times, you know, have been putting out, have had nobody in the office. I mean, they've, they've created a paper entirely from home within a few weeks. So, um, yeah, I mean, working practices being been thrown, thrown up in the air. And the implication of that, is we won't get back to normal. You know, we will be living with, um, uh, people will be looking for cost efficiencies. They will be looking to spend less money on property. Uh, they'll be using more virtual working. They'll be asking themselves some serious questions about how I can reduce my cost base in a post-COVID world, as well as, you know, what kind of media company I want to be going forward as well. And of course, the FD recently moved, obviously changed their offices uh, right. as well. So they've got suddenly that, uh, uh, that's to look at. Sure. Um, I mean, I think many media companies have been moving moving that direction for a long time in terms of, you know, where where is the most effective use of resources? Do we want to tie it up in these huge buildings? You will see many media companies not go back to those buildings or renting out. Um, uh, many have already talked about it, actually, you know, just using a third or, or a half of their previous office space. And so I think this is going to lead to a... Uh, obviously a big fallout in in media generally but I think it will also lead to a real a real change in in working practices I was having a conversation with uh, with Fergus Bell obviously uh, formerly from the AP uh, on the board of the uh, ONA about data journalism uh, and we were talking about the importance of obviously kind of organizations uh, corporates uh, certainly governments as well uh, to, to make sure that their data is transparent uh, when they are using it for stories. H how are you seeing it both from the news side, from the media side, as well as from the corporate side? Yeah, well, I mean, the COVID story has been, uh, has been largely told through data, um, or it certainly used a lot of you know, innovative practices or built on a lot of the practices that great data journalists have been, been using for some time to tell stories. But I think it's also... It's also clear that data isn't enough. You know, the interpretation of many of those graphs, and you know there's been a lot of sort of discussion over the best ways to display these things. You know, none of it is neutral. All of it, you know, the, the data in itself still needs that context, uh, and it needs the understanding of what, what is that underlying story. Often the data is, you know, out of date, or the data that we're seeing is only partial. All of these things have been true in the COVID crisis, right? So I think like a lot of things, data is not, is not the answer, but I think we've learned a lot about how to tell data stories differently and uh, the growing importance of data stories the, uh, in this particular case, as in climate change and a whole load of other things, you know, it, it's, it's one of the key things that we need to use to, as I say, distinguish journalism from the massive information that's on the internet. Are, are we in the early days of data storytelling? Story uh, no, I'd say we're in the in the in the middle stages, I and mean, we we do a lot of data storytelling in the digital news report. You know, we have a lot of data, and and you are constantly thinking about you know what is the most effective way to to tell that story. How can I take this data point and this data point and juxtapose it so that 
it's telling a dramatic story, but then you also need to be uh, balanced in the way you do that as well. So I think it's like a lot of journalism, you know, you're, you, you have to, um, you have to be authentic about the data. You have to um, be led by the data um, rather than just looking for something that looks dramatic or a curve that goes, goes like that. So data storytelling is, is complex like many other forms of journalism and it's only one of the tools, but I think an increasingly important tool. Yeah. And I mean, finally, I mean, looking ahead, obviously next year will be the 10th year of the uh, report in the next number of years. What, what do you see kind of, if you're able to spot any trends with regards to where the media news industry is going to be and therefore more from a communications, you know, uh, corporate storytellers out there, what do we need to bear in mind for where media and journalism is going to be in the next two or three years? Well, I think, I think it's going to be in quite a different place within five years um, because of because of COVID. So essentially, you know, many media companies felt that they had kind of 10 years to get their business in order to make that sort of digital transition to reduce the dependence on print or on, on advertising towards a more diversified revenue stream. And they're now realizing maybe they've got six months, if, if anything. So we're going to see um, many media companies uh, closing down, retrenching. We're going to see a lot of print going out of business, um, focus on the weekend. So, you know, the world will be some print. Um, we're going to see, yeah, consolidation job cuts. And we're going to see some, some positive things as well. We're going to see some new companies emerging, as there always are when you get a, a, an inflection point like this, because there's going to be new opportunities, new habits that people can build on. And I think, you know, if looking back, we've been in this position where um, we haven't really understood that uh, the internet and digital was so transformative. And so we've just been carrying on with that model of trying to do mass media. In the future, media is going to be, there'll be a few mass media companies still trying to provide something for everybody and they'll have the scale to make it work. But we're also going to have a lot more niche media, a lot more media that is just providing something of specific value to a specific group of people and so it's the stuff in the middle that that is going to really struggle local news is going to go through a dreadful time in many countries as well and um so i think in five years time the media industry is going to look very different and there'll be some gaps which probably going to have to be filled by government or, or or other um foundations to to support some of the democratic elements of journalism as well and obviously i mean as you say in the next kind of you know two to five years three to five years just kind of throwing something out there are we going to start seeing people wanting to make up their own uh news platform themselves you know the right you know the return of aggregators but perhaps i think we'll um we'll see we'll see change on the on the on the platform side as well uh there'll be a lot of innovation i think um the on the platform side the thing to watch would probably be obviously audio platforms um, and video platforms, I think. Um, so, you know, it's been, been a few big ones and to some extent the big ones will, will dominate. But I think the growth of formats that aren't about text is going to be really interesting to watch. We're already seeing that with, you know, the opportunities that Spotify have spotted in, mm-hmm. in audio. But I think video, we've seen Quibi and a few others emerge in the last, uh, last year or so video news platforms, I think we'll see more of that as well. Well, Nick, look, we could talk for hours. Uh, I always read your report and I have for the last nine years and your trends documents as well. Um, thanks very much once again. And look, we'll chat certainly before uh, the uh, the 10th edition, which uh, 
I'm looking forward to, but certainly maybe if there's a recap before then. Thanks again. Thanks. Great to talk to you as well.